It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Coming up on today's show, Boris Johnson's successor. What will it mean for UK-Canada relations? Canadian astronomers just giddy with what they're seeing from the James Webb Telescope and Canadians heavily involved in this project. We'll talk about the first pictures coming back and some changes made to the chuck wagon races at the Calgary Stampede. We're going to have a conversation about um, Boris Johnson. Well, not Boris Johnson so much as what comes next after Boris Johnson is no longer the Prime Minister of Great Britain. As we know, he has resigned, but he's still there. He's, he's taking the Jason Kenney resignation uh, style. He's resigned, but he's going to stay on until a new leader has been selected. So we still have Johnson for a while. Um, they did outline some of the details as to how the leader will be selected there. But um, various MPs, I think that already a dozen MPs have sort of hinted that they may be interested in replacing him. Now, love him or hate him, Johnson uh, always was a larger-than-life figure in British politics. There's no two ways about it. He was a leading voice uh, in NATO's response to Russia. He was a big deal in both the G7 and the G20, of course. His departure is going to mean a change in things on the global stage, and it could have some effects on Canada as well. So let's go through that a little bit. We're going to chat now with Jeremy Kinsman. Distinguished fellow, the Canadian International Council and a former Canadian High Commissioner to the UK. Mr. Kinsman, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Well, thanks, Jay. Let's start with <clears throat> Johnson's uh, various roles on the world stage, you know, going back to his time as Mayor of London and an MP and all the rest. He's always been a larger-than-life figure, hasn't he? Yeah, he's a showman. I mean, yeah. he's a showman. He... Uh, I used to uh, spend quite a lot of time in his uh, riding of Henley, you know, where the rowing regattas go on. And uh, he was truly, uh, truly loved uh, by uh, by his amused electorate. I mean, he's great at connecting to people. And he did that on the world stage. Uh, you guys in media, uh, you uh, went for him oh, yes. because he was always newsworthy. He always had a good line, a good joke, a quip, a quote. And uh, that, I think, more than anything uh, that he said, was uh, what made him so prominent. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, media loves a character when it comes to politicians, and uh, he was that, if nothing else. Um, now, like I said, there's a lengthy list of potential replacements, up to a dozen I've seen. Um, yeah. and, and the one thing they all have in common at this point in the race is they aren't Boris Johnson. So we're going yeah. to see a change in leadership style, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some are uh, more not for Boris Johnson than others. Uh, some are running as I'm not Boris Johnson, and uh, a few others are running as uh, I, I stick up for Boris Johnson. I'm continuity. But th the fact is, none of them are Boris Johnson, and that, for most of people in the party, is good news, because he became a liability. Yeah. You know, his uh, his... His popularity uh, diminished considerably when his personal, I guess I'd call them failings, uh, began to show up and uh, undermine confidence in his leadership. And, and so he began to circle the drain, and, uh, and everybody then began to sort of lick their lips. This has been going on for months, 
And so these people haven't just come out of the shadows yeah. as, as a, an immediate whim. They've been thinking about it for months. You know, and a lot of his uh, his problems and the issues that he dealt with, of course, were, you know, in the UK. When you take a look at his role on the world stage, he was sort of maybe even the loudest voice when it came to the situation with Russia and Ukraine. I know the people of Ukraine very disappointed that he's no longer uh, leading the UK. They, they, they see him as a friend and an ally. Do you think um, Britain's stance on the world stage may change with Johnson not there? No, I think he'll there'll be less profile. I mean, his was the loudest voice on uh, such affairs for two reasons, basically, uh, Shay. One is that since Brexit, you know, Britain's been trying to forge a kind of the, the so-called global Britain profile for the country, which means it's got to compete out there with a loud voice. I mean, Britain's just another country now, uh, the size of, 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 of France or Italy, smaller than Germany. So it's got to make it's got to make some waves to get some attention. And on Ukraine, uh, I'm not questioning at all the sincerity of his commitment. He was uh, very prominent because he expressed the emotion uh, that that leads people like ourselves to be behind Ukraine in a way that kind of validated the the, the confidence of, of Ukrainians themselves. And they're going to miss that emotional pull. But he did it repeatedly, not just because he believed it but because he was desperately trying to change the conversation in Britain away from the things that people had against the way he was governing. And so, you know, does it make any difference uh, on the world stage? No, uh, not really. Uh, Britain is going to be as a pro-Ukraine, uh, as, uh, uh, you know, as keen on, on, on trying to conserve Western uh, unity and solidarity as as probably any uh, anybody else, uh, uh, but but you know it's not going to make a big difference. How would you characterize Canada UK relations under Johnson? Well, I guess they, they, they're okay. Uh, I, you know, the, one of the tendencies I noticed when I was there uh, is there's a, there's a what do I say an impulse. Uh, to overplay the American card in Britain, uh, on a, particularly on the part of conservative politicians, and and the uh, not that this diminishes Canada, but when they look to North America, you know they 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 look to the United States because that's the way they leverage uh, their influence. It's the way they've always done it since the Second World War, and and um, and so Johnson did that big time. I mean he. Uh, uh, and and I, 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 our relations are always good. They're mm-hmm. always professional. Um, we have a lot going on. We have less trade and economic consequence than we ought to. They're 40, 43% dependent on the EU, despite all the brouhaha about Brexit. That's where their money is. Um, and Canada, Canada's, we're trusted. And, you know, it's funny. I'll tell you a story. I mean, when I, I was there, I was kind of offended uh, by the extent to which Canada was viewed through kind of an ex-colonialist lens, you know, uh, except uh, that bit by bit, Canadians began to take over things out of sheer competence. I mean, we had a Canadian, uh, Mark Carney, who ran the Bank of England. Somebody even ran the the, the uh, uh, Royal Mail, uh, the, 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 the British Lawn Tennis Association. <laughs> and increasingly, you know, as Britain was kind of in Brexit chaos, Canada seemed to be a, a place where things actually got done. That may surprise some of you, but that's how it seemed 
and that's good news. Uh, basically, I guess, uh, when it comes down to it, we shouldn't expect too much change. Like you say, we don't ever really seem to have a whole lot of drama between Canada and the UK, regardless of who's in leadership positions on either side of the pond. We seem to have a pretty stable relationship. Yes, I think that's true. I, I think that uh, fundamentally, uh, and it's been going on for a long time, Canadians and the British uh, trust each other. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, at the upper governmental levels. I mean, there have been some uh, snits uh, between prime ministers, uh, between uh, Pierre Trudeau and Margaret Thatcher. Mulroney got along with her famously. Uh, Jean Chrétien was, uh, always did very, very well there. But at the beginning, I remember Tony Blair sort of thought, who is this old guy? I mean, do I have to pay attention to him? He learned he did. And, and I think that's what you always learn, is that Canada and Britain do, uh, at the end of the day, rely on each other. Uh, we talk pretty much uh, the same language, not just literally, but I think in terms of values, you know. Yeah. It's interesting. Can I make one point? Sure. In these, this race uh, today, uh, they've got a file today, and the first ballot of MPs, the 358 Conservative MPs, is tomorrow. It's very interesting that some of the leading leading contenders are people who are British, absolutely, uh, but they're the children of immigrants from South Asia. There's one woman uh, whose uh, parents came from Nigeria. It's a very different face of Britain you're seeing today. And you know what? It's one that looks a lot like Canada. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting analogy. Jeremy, great insight. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. want to uh, follow along for this next segment, um, and you should, absolutely mind-blowing, go to globalnews.ca, click on the story, Cosmic Cliffs, Dancing Galaxies, James Webb Telescope's first photos dazzle. Boy, do they ever. I don't know if you saw the photo that came out last night in the announcement by U.S. President Joe Biden, but I think it was sort of like the the really wide shot, and then they've zoomed in on some other things uh, today. It's I don't know. It's They're beautiful. I wish I knew what they were in some cases, and hopefully we can find out, but uh, absolutely incredible photos. Okay, to find out what's going on with the James Webb, the, these first pictures and the mission itself, we're going to chat with uh, Loic Albert, who is currently the scientific instrument expert um, for... Uh, the N-I-R-I-S-S. I'm not sure what it stands for, but it's the Canadian component of this whole mission. It sort of, it locks in the telescope, as I understand it, on whatever it happens to be photographing at that point. But let's find out for sure. We're going to bring in uh, Loic now. Loic, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Hey, it's a pleasure. We, we chose a hard acronym, right, for this <laughs> <You> instrument? <laughs> what does it stand it's, for? It's, it's, it's nearest. It's the near... Infrared, uh, what is it? Near infrared and slitless. Oh, I'm all confused. <laughs> <laughs> I always say nearest. Anyway, it takes images and takes spectra. So that's that's what uh, that's why we called it nearest. Gotcha. Okay. Now, hey, like I say, you're on the team. Tell us about your involvement in the James Webb Telescope. How far back does it go, and what have you done? Oh yeah. So I personally, I've been working on this for well over ten years, but. Uh, my, 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 my boss, if you want, René Doyon, it was the PI of the Canadian instrument, has been working on this for since uh, 2001, essentially. So it's a long, long project. Wow. We're so proud. And, and for, for Canada, Canada should be very proud about this, uh, this project because we, we do have a, 
an involvement in this. It, it all started with the building the guider for the observatory, what we call the Fine Guidance Sensor, the FGS. And that's what got Canada involved and CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, involved in, in web, is to, is to build a guider that makes sure that the telescope is steady yeah. when we take exposure and it doesn't move so that we can have exploit uh, the, all of the resolution that the, the telescope can provide. Because so if I understand correctly, tell, tell me if I'm wrong here, like we think when we pull out our iPhone and we take a picture, it's snap, we've got our picture. With these photographs, uh, it takes sometimes hours to, to, to actually get the full photograph, right? Exactly, literally. You have to expose, you have to let the photons accumulate slowly because those things are very faint. And, and, and so you need to expose for a long time, hours, days, even weeks, uh, before you get uh, those faint blobs in the image. And it's, it's, it's uh, you know, and that's why also we need big mirrors, big telescopes, is to essentially collect as, mu- as many photons as possible. The bigger the, is, is the better for, for this. So with this telescope, we are very sensitive, 100%, uh, 100 times uh, more sensitive than Hubble is. Uh, at the infrared wavelength. Yeah. Uh, for someone who's been working on this, like you say, for 10 years yourself, the Canada Space Agency involved for much longer than that, how rewarding is this? How exciting is it for you to see these pictures coming back? Uh, you can't imagine. It's been, imagine, you know, working on one project for that long. And as you know, there were many uh, reports, launch launch delays, because this is a fundamentally very complex machine oh, yeah. to build and test. So it was built, but the testing phase was taking a lot of time to make sure it worked the first time. And so we, because we only had one shot, we couldn't repair or fix the, the telescope once in space. So for me, going through all of those steps to test, get to the launch day, Christmas 2021, uh, and, and, and finally uh, going through the six months of what we call the commissioning, the essentially testing in in space of all of the instruments and finally reaching today with the release of images color color images uh it's it's <laughs> it's really really neat professionally it's the the best the best time of my career That's, I, I can imagine i can imagine the pictures themselves uh, are you like me looking at them and going wow they're incredible <laughs> but i don't really know what's going i mean it's so hard to wrap your head around this stuff yeah i mean i i got access to the images at the same time as you it was kept very secret by nasa and last night the first image release of the, the deep field. I must, I must have stared and do a zoom on the image for over well over an hour, looking at every little speckle of light. I, I even found this is a, a field of galaxies. We're essentially sitting in our Milky Way, a very busy town of billions of stars, yep. and we're looking straight up where there's l- l- the l- less stars, looking at the rest of the cosmos, looking at far distant galaxies and exposing for 12 hours. And, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing then those galaxies appear in our image and they are very distant. And if you look at that image, um, you should go back to it and look for the red spots. The red spots are the galaxies that are actually the farthest away. The, the white ones are close, closer by. Okay. And, and, and because the cosmos, the universe is expanding, it, galaxies that are very distant expand 
faster than galaxies that are close by. And so as the galaxies expand and move away from us, their light is redshifted by a physical phenomenon called uh, the Doppler effect, just like when you have an ambulance uh, passing by for the sound. Okay, the same effect, but for light. And so it stretches the light from blue to red. And if you look at that image, you see the red dots are all the very distant galaxies. Those are the galaxies that we want to study, to study how the first galaxies evolved and formed, or were they, what shape were they, what brightness were they, were they more, uh, was there more uh, very luminous galaxies or more very faint galaxies at that era? So those are all questions that we want to, to address, and I'm sure we'll be able to address with, with the web. Amazing, amazing. I've never heard it explained that way before. Thank you so much for that. The other question I have, we, we, we know that when we're taking a look at these pictures, we're not only seeing, uh, we're also looking back through time, right? Because we know some of the light that we're seeing captured by the web, uh, whatever emitted that light no longer exists. Looking at yes. that picture you were talking about, is there any way to know, I mean, is it different colors of light, different size, different placement? Is there any way of knowing what the oldest light is in that image? Or does it all look the same? Yeah, no, you, you, that's a very good question. And that's what I was referring to. If you look at the red galaxies, that's those the are oldest. the farthest away. Okay, And, and when, when, when you have a, a distant object, don't, remember that the light that we, that we collected with the telescope uh, took literally 13 billion years tra- to travel through space uninterrupted until it reached our mirrors. Okay, those photons of light were emitted uh, 13 billion years ago by that galaxy, uh, at that time very young, and the, the photons traveled and, and we finally collected them uh, now. So it's literally, you're, it's like looking at those photons is, is like uh, being in a time machine. You, you see what the universe was like at that time when the, the, the photons were emitted. So looking at the images, look at for the red stuff. Okay. The red stuff is is where it, it, it's the oldest things that you. I mean, it's it's the farther uh, back in time that you can uh, look at. Some of the, uh, I guess, more close ups. If we're going to call that the wide shot, the establishing shot. Some of the close ups of like um, I don't know if it's Stephens or Stevens Quintet. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. And and the cosmic cliffs and things like that. What what are we seeing in those photos? What stands out to you? Have you had a chance to look at some of those and the nebulas and all the rest? Yeah. So I, 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 I to be honest, I had very little time <laughs> today to look at those images. I yeah, but I did I did see them, but didn't have a lot of time. But the the first one, Stefan Squinted, is an iconic, uh, if you want, picture for even amateur astronomers when you turn your your first small telescope right. to the sky. That's one target that you like to see because and what's so special about the those galaxies? You have four interacting galaxies, so they are like spiral-like galaxies that got very close to each other, and gravity, uh, the force of gravity, just uh, sheared, uh, stretched those galaxies, and and they represent essentially what we think uh, went on in the early universe. At that time, the universe was much smaller, and galaxies were still forming, and smaller galaxies were fusing, merging with each other in the same way that we see the Stefan Quintets uh, today. So they're kind of a, you know, a, 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 a preview of what, yeah. what uh, not a preview, but they represent what 
the young universe uh, was in terms of galaxies' interaction. And one, one nice image that I, I looked at uh, today that I really like is uh, the Carina uh, Nebula. So this is a much closer uh, uh, target, right? We're looking now, we're, we're not looking at far distant galaxies. We're looking within our Milky Way, within our galaxy. Okay. And we're looking at a cloud, a big cloud of gas and yeah. dust. And in that cloud, uh, there are stars being born right now, at the moment, you know, uh, stars that are less than a million years old. That's very uh, young for a star. And, and you see the process by which stars form. You see bipolar jets. On, uh, I've seen at least one case in that image where, you know, as, as, uh, as a, a dust cloud uh, collapses, it becomes a disk. At the center, a star uh, slowly forms, and it, it, it uh, uh, accretes that, uh, that gas in the disk. And some of that, uh, of that uh, material gets ejected by the star at both poles at a very high speed. And I, I could see that uh, this, uh, this morning in the, in the image. So we're witnessing the very young here, not the very old. Amazing. It is so amazing. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough for sort of explaining some of it to us, Loic. Uh, just incredible stuff. I really appreciate your time. As I said earlier, when it comes to Chucks and, and Rodeo and stuff like that, I am a fan, uh, full disclosure. And I know a lot of people will say that's horrible. And I know a lot of people want the races to go away and all the rest of it. I get it. I understand that. Um, I, I think we need to point out some of the work that goes into... Well, the races specifically this year, there's been some changes made down at um, at the Stampede to try and keep the animals primarily uh, as safe as possible when they're taking part in the chuck wagon races. So to walk us through exactly what's happening, we are joined now by University of Calgary researcher in equine medicine, Dr. Renaud Leguiet, who is involved with the Stampede in some of the work that's being done there. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay, for the invitation. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting. It's fascinating, actually, some of the work that's being done. I guess the biggest and the most obvious change that people will notice is there's three rigs out there instead of four, right? I mean, that's that's going to slap you right in the face. That's a huge change. Exactly, yeah. I think uh, so the, the, the goal is really to uh, decrease the risk, right? And as you said, so uh, if you have less horses and more space around the wagons, um, that, you know, yeah. decreases the risk and gives them more margin of error, right, if something happens to uh, clear up and, and get some space to, to go around. So uh, so that's the number one thing. They uh, decrease the number of wagons to three per race. Um, and so uh, so you have a little bit more space in the infield and in those curves uh, for the for the wagons and the horses. Yeah, just and just maybe it gives you an extra split section to, to, to make a maneuver. The other one that I find is kind of interesting is these foam bars. And if people see video or they see pictures uh, of the track, they'll see them. They're red and white bars extending off the inside rail. Tell us what those are and what they're meant to do. Yeah, so those are like, uh, so like a little bit like, you know, the, the pool noodle yep. that we have probably these days when it's hot, <laughs> like today. For sure. Uh, so they're, they're like foam uh, fingers or bars like that, that, uh, you know, you can expand uh, towards the inside of the track. So it basically gives a safety lane. Uh, so the horses, you know, see those uh, those noodles, basically those bars, and uh, they uh, the bar extends so you have a free 
uh, extra lane, basically. And it's really an emergency lane. So meaning, you know, if a horse or a wagon gets, you know, needs the extra space to, you know, avoid something or avoid a horse or if there is any issue with some equipment, they have that emergency stop line, basically, or they have a little bit more room uh, to, to, to go on the side of the track versus, you know, before uh, they didn't have that space. So they were stuck, you know, next to the fence. And so uh, we the, the drivers didn't have really many options. So it gives yeah. them an extra option there, like, you know, like us on the highway, basically, where you can have that safety or emergency line, basically. So basically, the, the two changes we've talked about so far are essentially creating time and space for the drivers giving them an opportunity to have to have an out right exactly yeah so it decreases you know in case there is um, equipment issue you know sometimes something can break in the middle of the race and then you know the wagons are harder to control or if you know there is any need to avoid an obstacle or avoid a wagon or avoid a horse or if there is you know so you decrease the chances of contact between wagons and horses and uh, you increase, you know, the options for the drivers to basically uh, stay safe. Now, we always hear whenever we uh, do these stories, we hear from the, the drivers, we hear from the, the rodeo participants and all the rest, how important these animals are to them. It's their livelihood. They care for them. They're their best friends. So when you're down there working with these kinds of changes and, and with the, um, the people involved in the races, do you see that reflected? Are they interested in trying to make this as safe as possible? Absolutely, absolutely. Again, I, I'm I'm neutral here. You know, I'm yep. a university researcher, and uh, my uh, you know my interest here is you know the horses and the health of the horses, and so I do some research, you know, to help around those those issues for sure. And definitely, you know, when I see the the drivers, it's uh, the number one thing. Absolutely, they they do not want to you know have accidents or hurt these horses. Absolutely, I mean they. They spent a lot of time and money and training into these horses, and uh, for them, it's uh, it's an absolutely yeah, it's it's really a disaster if they lose a horse, mm-hmm. right? So the the goal, even if you know they are competitive, the goal is obviously to win the races, but uh, to get you know the best preparation possible. And so those horses are really athletes, and they are treated like athletes. They have a training program, they have a feeding program, uh, they have, you know, uh, massages, they re- receive, you know, the best level of care you can get really clearly. And um, as an aside, you know, I was saying, well, those horses are better treated than, than many people, honestly. Yeah. The other thing, I, I like some of the high-tech approaches you take to making it um, as effective as possible. You're talking about pool noodles and taking a horse out. That I wouldn't say is high tech, but you actually do all kinds of testing on the animals when it comes down to the surfaces they run on. I mean, just talk about some of the other things that may not be so apparent to people who are just coming down to watch the races. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, so, so basically at the Stampede, they try to control, you know, different risks. So like you said, the, the noodles and the, 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 those bars on the track and, and the, the number of wagons, that's the risk of, you know, driver or equipment issue. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, the other risk you can control or try to control is, uh, uh, the risk of sudden fractures, for example. Um, so one risk, uh, and it happens in humans too, like we have the same issue with 
runners or military in training and, and people can have uh, their uh, tibial bone, for example, sure, yeah. bone, like a fracture under the stress of the load and the runs and etc. So it's the same for those horses. Uh, and obviously, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's catastrophic failure, we call them. So there are sudden fracture during racing. So how can we prevent that? Uh, well, we know based on other studies and the science that the track has an effect. Uh, basically, the track, the footing, uh, will affect uh, the uh, basically the, the impact and the vibrations, if you want, along the, the leg. And so that's what we did. Uh, we did a study uh, to help optimize the track footing conditions, so the dirt, basically. Because yeah. uh, you can have a track that is uh, deeper, a track that is harder, and so too hard of a track and you have too many vibrations, too much shock or impact on the legs, too deep of a track and you can have uh, tendons, ligaments, issues. So we basically instrumented some horses with some uh, uh, very, very small sensors. So they're accelerometers. We put some on the, on the hooves. Uh, the cannon bone, the radius bone on the legs, and we had wires going up the horse uh, to a recorder, a data recorder. Uh, we had also a GPS. We had also um, uh, motion sensors on the back of the horse. And uh, the rider was, so it was all organized at the stampede before the racing. Right, so yeah. it was like three weeks ago. And the, the rider was going full speed on the track with the horse uh, instrumented like that. And we tried different track conditions. So the Stampede was preparing a deep track, a medium track, and a, a hard track. So soft, medium, hard. And then we also did different moisture content uh, tests like that. And uh, the recorders were looking at uh, basically the impact or the shocks on the legs at different levels of the legs and the dampening effect, if you want. So the goal, again, is to find that happy medium of, you know, not too hard, not too soft of a track um, and give those, you know, uh, uh, data back to the stampedes for them to, uh, to be able to optimize the track so that um, it, it, is, uh, it is safer and not in inducing, you know, uh, fractures or decreasing the risk of fractures. Pretty amazing stuff. It's just fascinating. Um, Doctor, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.